I don't believe in no one's scenarios. Data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. <laughs> Hello and welcome to a special Cheeky Scientist radio show. Today we are talking about management consulting careers for PhD with a McKenzie and Company uh, insider, James Wadsworth. James has worked with uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of PhDs to help them get into management consulting careers at Tier 1 companies like McKenzie, uh, Boston Consulting Group, and Bain, as well as Tier 2 companies and boutique companies. PhDs are being hired into these roles uh, very aggressively because of their ability to uh, really do three things. Uh, Collect information and data. This is what management consultants do. As you'll learn on this radio show, they go on site and they gather information, uh, quantitative but as as well as qualitative, to figure out problems. Um, And then they, they analyze it. They analyze the, the data, the information, they draw conclusions from it, and third and most importantly, and you'll hear James talk about this, synthesis. They synthesize the information to understand the problem and then to make a recommendation to the companies that hire these management consulting firms. We have a lot to discuss today, so let's jump in now. So with that, we're going to bring on a panel. This is the first time we brought out a panel for this program because it's so new. And I'm very excited to talk about uh, talk with Olga and Annette um, about the management consulting firm program and, and the gaps in their knowledge that it has closed. So I'll bring on Annette and Olga here. Hi, Olga. How are you? Good to see you. Let me see if I can. There you go. Hello, Sarah. Right. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Thanks for being here. And Annette, good to see you as well. Thank you for being here. How are Pleasure. you? Doing? Good, good. Well, good, maybe I'm doing very well, and I do appreciate both of you making time to be here. You're, you're in the management consulting firm program, and I thought I would ask you, you know, to maybe look back now that you've uh, received some, some of the training in the program and tell us the gaps that you realized you had in your knowledge when it come, came not just to management consulting, but really how to approach business problems um, or just your overall business acumen. And then, of course, how the, the uh, management consulting firm program, MCF, helped you close those gaps and what you've enjoyed the most about it. And I'll start with you, Olga. So looking back, what are the gaps that you've been able to close or that you've seen that you need to work on still in terms of management consulting or business acumen in general? And then what you've, how the program has helped you close those gaps, what you're enjoying about the program? Yeah, definitely. I would say that... Uh, As a PhD student, we all possess the analytical skills to solve problems. But another thing that we don't possess, let's say, is that we don't have the lingo and a way to communicate that is more like business oriented. So it could be that at the beginning you are in these meetings and there is a lot that is being expressed and communicated, but it's very subtle and it it, it has like kind of their own kind of rituals, I would say that is very far away from what it is academia, you know? Because it's a little bit more laid back in academia and it's not, it's hierarchical for the professionals, but once you are with the students and the postdocs, it's a little bit flat in the hierarchy. Whereas in management, management consultant, you, have, you are in meetings where they, with people that, are, that belong 
to across uh, across all levels of the organization. Sometimes other consultants that they also try to defend their own interests and their own points of views. And it becomes very, very important to have good communication skills, good social skills, and that you have a good understanding of like how business works. And that you don't learn from a PhD, definitely. You learn it from experience or if you join one of those programs, right? You can start, like you, you can have like a good start, like a good foundation. I would say that most of it, you will learn it by doing the job. But at least when you apply, you will, you will be able to show that you know what they're talking about and that you are not naive, just like not knowing what is happening in the meetings, right? Yeah, and a lot of that comes down to just understanding the, the nomenclature, right? Like the language of business, uh, the concepts. And then, the, you know, the second part, which you alluded to is piecing those concepts together to solve business problems. And I, I'm surprised how many PhDs walk into an interview not realizing they'll be asked to solve business problems on the interview, or they'll just kind of be tested on, you know, one that I was just talking about. I did, um, I did a presentation earlier this morning before this one, and I was talking to a lot of PhDs uh, about a particular interview question that tends to come up quite a bit about, okay, you know, let's say you're an Intel or Pfizer, et cetera. You work on their R and D team. You spend all of this time developing this product and the product goes to market. It's successful and increases profits by $20,000. Um, should we continue to make that product? And questions like that, just real simply as an example, because I think a lot of the attendees here are like, I don't, I don't understand the types of questions I could be asked where developing my business concepts and acumen, going through business case studies will help you. Um, I'll get back to the answer of what that will be, but really good uh, points, Olga. I'm going to come back to you real quick after I talk to Annette for one last question as well. So Annette, I do want to ask you the same question. For, from your point of view, looking back, the gaps you had in terms of your knowledge of management consulting, business acumen concepts, and then how the program helped you close those gaps or is helping you. Sure, Isaiah. Thank you. Um, I was a consultant in California and I worked with several counties and I had no idea about the industry as a whole mm -hmm. or that there was even an onboarding process. I was just thrown into a pool and expected to perform and do a job with public officials and county governments and nonprofits. So looking at the curriculum now and being in the program has allowed me to have a very larger view of the industry of consulting as a whole and see how I measure up. And I was a business professor in China, so I taught business, but learning the business acumen in detail has really helped me to advance my consulting practice now. For example, I taught agile planning and a lot of elements, Six Sigma in business, but now having the curriculum and the SMBA behind my name has been an advantage in terms of consulting as a whole. Yeah, and I think, you know, MCF, uh, SMBA, like you mentioned, both those, both of us, of those are our programs, uh, really help more than anything else develop that acumen because it's positioned for PhDs. And you have to understand that the way that your mind works as a PhD is very different than uh, a non-PhD's mind. Um, mostly because you're very good at zooming in deep in the weeds on individual uh, topics, your niche PhD background, data, information in general. Uh, but zooming out to look at the scope the scale, the sequence of something is a challenge. Um, so going back to my question, just I'm curious for those of you who are attendees while we have the panel here, you work mm -hmm. in R&D, you create a product with a team that produces $20,000 in profits. 
And you got to make a recommendation to uh, the company on whether or not you should continue to make that product. Should you continue to do it? Uh, what would your recommend, recommendation be? Yes or no? One last question, right? Walking through case studies. I know a lot of, both of you have done this. Uh, case studies are very valuable. It's why they can cost hundreds of dollars individually, or you have to be part of a business school, right? With like a library to back it up. Uh, can you explain to the attendees here who have maybe have never walked through a case study, don't know who they are or what they are, um, why they're so valuable? Okay, and we'll see if anybody ventures a guess here. But for you, Olga, to start, how have the business case studies or how have business case studies in general, whether you've done a mini one or reviewed them or looked at the case interviews, how do they help a PhD develop their business acumen? How do they help you? Well, I guess like what you were just commenting just before, as a consultant, they're generally asking you for your point of view, POV, and you have to be very fast and sharp concise, sound very clever, right? So you have to practice. I must say that um, I work for a, a boutique consulting firm, so it's not one of, and, and I also study and prepare for McKenzie and all the scene, right? But it's, it's, a, it's a matter of practice, I would say. Like, it's very important to be familiar with the case studies that they're gonna ask you because you have, it's, it's normally very time sensitive. It's very critical for you to answer at the moment. And it's, I mean, I, I probably will assure you that most of you have the capacity to answer those questions. The thing is that you need is practice, right? So if you have access to materials that already uh, give you with good examples, that will be one that will help you very much with your training to be good at, at answering those case studies. And another one that I think I have personally experienced and I'm very grateful for Chicken Scientists Association was that it provided me with a network of peers which we will practice the case studies live using, I don't know, Skype or Zoom or whatever. And this, this really make a difference for me when I was applying for consulting jobs. Because um, it might look like, oh, I'm just practicing with a peer, right? But you still feel the adrenaline of trying to answer a question right on the spot you know, and generally involves numbers, you know, and trying to calculate everything as much as you can, you know, and try to be as sharp. We tend to be very, very verboric when we get anxious. Start going in circles when we start yes. giving our reasoning. And, and generally you have a good idea, but you have to practice to have this clear thinking and be able to explain it straight away. You know? Yeah, great points. No, great points. Uh, the behavioral practice. We're really good at reading books. And uh, comprehension is a strength of all PhDs, or you wouldn't have got your PhD or come this far. Uh, but behaviorally, being able to competently make a recommendation on your feet or confidently talk through a problem when there's pressure is, is a different story. And you know the difference if you've done mock, a mock thesis defense. Your first one was probably a disaster. And then like four or five, you know, you were much better and much more trained for your actual thesis defense than you would have been if you just went in cold. That's the behavioral practice that we're talking about. So, and that same question to you, you, you know, you've gone through a lot of case studies, case interviews, you've done them in the real world. Uh, what could you add to this topic? I think just having the colleagues 
<clears throat> excuse me, the colleagues to um, share your answers with because we all come from a different scope. And so my background is public policy, but I'm hearing other people's input from, they might have a background in chemistry or economics. And so practicing these cases with my PhD colleagues has given me a, just a wider understanding of how the problems and how the solutions can be perceived and the methods that we would go through in terms of sharing our analysis and we're live. We're on video, and so we're performing and answering these key questions as if we were in an interview situation. So it's really helpful to prepare yourself for interviews. Mm. Yeah, well said. So thank you so much, both of you. I really appreciate it. Um, congratulations on your career success, and uh, uh, we look forward to watching more of it. Thanks. Thank you. It's great to have on uh, those with actual management consulting experience with us to talk about uh, not just the value of the management consulting firm program, but the value of what you're going to learn today. And so with that, I'm going to bring on James Wadsworth. He's the senior program leader and former McKinsey and company consultant. Hi, James. Hey, everyone. Can you hear me? We can. Yeah. Great to have you on. Right. What'd you think of the panel? Good to get some, uh, hear some perspectives. Yeah, definitely. Great to hear some feedback. Um, and uh, definitely uh, good to know that a lot of this material is really helping people to make, um, you know, serious progress in their careers. That's the whole goal. Exactly. Talk about why, uh, you know, why get training at this level? You talk a lot about how getting into management consulting and, and the, these similar fields or working for a management consulting firm will put you 10 years ahead of your peers. So we have a lot of people here who are 10 years behind even that normal level because we've been in academia our entire lives. Uh, so how would you, I guess, for our attendees, encourage them that, hey, you're sought after for these roles, you can do it, and you should do it? Great, great question. So uh, first thing, right, so you are sought after. PhDs are, uh, uh, are very, very attractive to consulting firms for a number of reasons, right? The very first one is analytical capability. Right. Um, there is no question when it comes to a PhD that you have that in spades and that is uh, becoming more and more important. Right. As you think about things that you've been hearing about in the business world for a long time, big data, uh, right, operational research, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we're in an age where companies have more data than they know what to do with. Right. There's the problem is the proliferation of data, not. Uh, you know, a, a lack of data. And the people who have the ability to interpret that data and then synthesize it, right? So go from that data to the so what, like what does this mean? And what does this mean in the context of our business, our market, our customers, et cetera? That is an extremely, extremely attractive uh, skill set for management consulting firms. They want PhDs, they want you, and they want your analytical capability, right? Um, so, yes. you know, you can do it. Uh, absolutely. I've seen so many PhDs, right? People who started uh, like me, right? I, I, I am not a PhD. Um, but I started with no knowledge whatsoever of this industry. Uh, no feel, no natural inclination if there's such a thing or natural uh, aptitude for case interviews or anything like this and got to McKinsey, right? And I have seen dozens and dozens of people do that. One thing I just want to mention that 
might be helpful. Just as I was listening, I was just thinking yeah. about um, three partners that I know at McKinsey, right? One has a degree, a PhD in marine biology, and he is a partner at McKinsey. And guess what industry he works in? He is a partner at McKinsey who is an expert uh, in the high tech industry. N nothing to do yes. with marine biology, right? Number two, partner who has a, a PhD in chemistry. And who does he serve? Uh, he serves e-commerce clients, right? Retail B2C, that's business to consumer, e-commerce clients. And he has built a career on top of that now as a partner at McKinsey. And by the way, when I say partner at McKinsey um, or partner uh, you know, at these tier one or tier two, two firms, you should be thinking millionaire because all of these people are multi-millionaires, right? Mm. Uh, third person is, uh, has a PhD or got a PhD in um, computer science, focused on natural language processing, if that's familiar. So think of Alexa or, I just turned my head because my Alexa might do something, but, yeah. uh, or Siri, <laughs> right? Those types of things. And he uh, is a partner at McKinsey serving utility companies. So electricity, natural gas. Uh, so it, what I'm saying is this, one thing that's fascinating and amazing about management consulting and the industry is they're looking, yes, for expertise, but mostly uh, do you have analytical capability and can you communicate and build relationships? And from there, you can go anywhere you want to. Yeah, well, exactly right. And, and that's what we're going to dive into today. Uh, and with that, we're going to jump in. James, I know you have your ear to the ground on a lot of this stuff. What are the hiring trends during a recession that we should all be paying attention to? I guess in general, but obviously for specifically for these types of management consulting roles. Yeah. I'm, uh, so another thing that I've been thinking a lot about is I was hired uh, in 2010. So um, I was hired into management consulting in 2010. So you should remember um, that was in the middle of the Great Recession, right? Um, things didn't get to their worst until about the end of 2012 in the Great Recession, right? And so 2010 was right smack dab in the middle. A lot of people who graduated with me uh, from the university really struggled to find jobs. Um, so this is, uh, there is a basic principle here, which, you know, Isaiah has on the slide here. Uh, management consulting firms continue to hire throughout recessions and demand for yes. consulting work often increases. Um, so I've already seen the signs of this increasing during this recession right here, right? So I have a lot of uh, colleague or ex-colleagues, contacts, and others, right? So for example, uh, I now work for um, a SaaS company that's software as a service, right, uh, in the tech industry. Um, I am a customer of an ex-Deloitte uh, consultant who now runs his own boutique firm. And it has been terrible trying to get time from him to help us because his services are in such high demand from all of his customers. And he's getting new customers all mm. of the time as I speak with him because this type of recession raises massive, large questions that a lot of these leaders haven't faced before. And they need that outside, independent, objective expert help. Where do they go to for that? They go to their consultant. So I, I continue to see this, and I think that trend will continue. No, and I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of you are 
maybe feeling some uncertainty yourself, of course, like we all are in 2020, and you're wondering where things are headed. And what we've been trying to really focus on uh, at Cheeky Scientist, especially with the management consulting firm, is the careers that actually surge <laughs> during a recession. Management consulting is, the, the, the goal of management consultant is for a company, and so I'll relate it to what a lot of you think of, like clinical research organizations. Uh, these companies that uh, you know, an, an R&D lab, a lot of you have an R&D background or a STEM background, would hire, like a Pfizer would hire a CRO to help them with the overflow, a contract research organization or a clinical research organization, help them with the overflow of their experiments. That's what a large Pfizer or, or a similar company or Intel would do with a McKinsey company or Bain or a management consulting firm. They have an overflow of problems during a recession. They can't afford to take their internal operations uh, off of producing revenue and keeping the company afloat. So they need to bring in an outside company to solve their problems. Uh, so that's why this uh, career path is surging. Uh, so what do management consultants do at a high level, James? So, uh, you know, at a very high level, management consultants come in and answer, uh, strive to answer the most difficult, most ambiguous, and in my opinion, the most exciting types of problems, uh, problems that face businesses today. So you, you do this with data logic and really just a lot of business acumen. Uh, so right. when I was writing this material, right, I threw uh, just some of the most exciting, interesting, intriguing business questions that I could think of uh, into the mix, right? You can see a couple of those on the right, right? So think about uh, Apple, right? Um, I don't know if you guys remember this, uh, it, but I remember when the iPad first came out and I was thinking, that is so weird. Why do you need something in between a smartphone and a laptop? I don't, I don't, you know, I was still in college and I, uh, that's just weird. I don't think people are going to buy it. Well, uh, I'm an idiot, right? <laughs> look, at, look at that market, right? So here's another question. What if we went smaller, right? Should Apple launch a new device type that is somewhere between the iPhone and the iPad? Uh, some of you are saying, well, they, they have the mini iPad. That, that's kind of cheating. But just, just think about what type of thinking and research went into that mini iPad or even just goes into that type of question. Is that a good business move to make? If you're Apple, you have to find the next product that is going to drive your growth or your stock price is not going to perform well. Your investors and shareholders are not going to be happy and you're going to be in trouble. So really important, fascinating questions. These are the types of things that you get to work on all the time. And if you join, uh, you know, honestly, if you go directly into industry, um, out of university, uh, even as a PhD, um, you, I, I mean, I think you would be hard pressed to find uh, a new graduate at any level who gets to work on these types of questions. Mm. Yeah. And uh, it is an accelerant for sure. Because if you're here, you want to get into industry and you have to be uh, humble enough to know that you don't know what you don't know. And there's a lot out there in business that you just simply don't understand. And the best way to learn is through intensive exposure. And that's what you did to get your PhD in intensive exposure. Think about your first year. Uh, okay, so you've talked about these different tiers of consulting firms, right? So we have the tier one, and I think I finally memorized them, right? McKenzie and Company, Bain and Boston Consulting Group. Tier two, all the other big ones, and then tier three is these boutique, boutique firms. Um, what are these firms focused on right now? So what kind of problems are they solving? If you could you know, talk about some of the patterns since... February and the, and the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of the focus has shifted. You capture it perfectly here in the top left corner, right? A lot of the focus has shifted to helping customers and clients mitigate risk, um, you know, understand the new environment and make 
uh, predictions with confidence about what's going to happen to their industry and how they should, uh, you know, what measures they need to put in place right now to be prepared for what's coming down the road. Um, and then also, I uh, exactly as you say here, I've seen a lot of shift to uh, a focus on helping people um, deal with huge up upheaval, huge changes for their workforces, right? In industries where remote work is a possibility, there's a, a ton that goes into making that actually work hard. How do you ensure that your employees still feel connected to a team? How do you ensure that productivity stays as high, uh, that results are still achieved, et cetera, et cetera, right? In industries where remote work is not really uh, a, a possibility, well, how do you keep everybody safe? How do you maintain confidence? How do you, um, you know, uh, provide some assurances for both customers and employees uh, that things are going to be okay? Um, even massive and, and very unfortunate decisions like, uh, you know, layoffs or finding other ways to avoid layoffs. These are all things that consultants are jumping into the mix to help guide customers on. Yeah. And, and on this virtual environment, because the question came up, just curious, how do you see their internal teams adapting? Are they traveling less? Are they having to solve problems virtually as well? Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so it depends on the region, obviously, and a lot of the firms that I, I guess, pay attention to or, or the ones where I have connections, ex-colleagues, et cetera, are global firms. So depending on the region, there's a lot of different approaches um, that individual offices can take. But absolutely, you see teams that in the past or before the pandemic would be together in a room, uh, you know, not 24-7, but maybe, uh, you know, 16-6 or something like that. Right. Are, are now getting together with, uh, you know, an open Zoom meeting, uh, you know, or, or an open Microsoft Teams meeting or whatever the platform is to maintain that communication, have the ability to work on these problems together, pulling in clients. I mean, it's absolutely and totally changed the nature of the work. Mm. Um, they've, you know, these firms have really had to adapt, right? It, because typically, a lot of research is just being there and seeing how the company works. Yeah. And, and so uh, being able to identify things that they can improve. And when it comes to getting hired, we, we know that PhDs have a strong technical background. Um, management consulting firms uh, target them because of that. Like all of you have to know you can get hired into management consulting just as uh, easily as any other career. You really can. You're just as in demand is maybe the best way to think about it. Certainly it's, uh, you know, it's business intensive, but you can get into it versus any other one. And it's, it is a very exciting career and they adapt and will work virtually and it's not stunted at all by, by the pandemic. In fact, it's flourishing right now. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's better for you to think of it as a safety net rather than some risky thing. Cause it's way safer than academia right now, way more in demand. Um, but you do have to think about your skills in a different way and just communicate them differently. So can you walk us through some of these skills, especially in terms of PhD James and, and, uh, what, what kind of skill set should they be think about, thinking about in terms of communicating when they're applying? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I love, I love this chart, um, starting with research and synthesis, right? Think about being uh, a lot of the value that a management consultant brings to a customer is a customer is often too deep into the weeds of a particular problem, um, maybe too habituated uh, to how things have always been done around here. Uh, and, and they don't have the background that you guys have to be able to approach a problem, formulate a question and do research with, uh, you know, the openness 
that is looking for anything significant, right? So that research and synthesis is extremely, extremely important. Um, I, I would guess that, and this is a total guess, right? But I, I would say that 90%, if not more, of consulting projects or consulting engagements include some sort of qualitative research. That's a survey, mm. uh, uh, a focus group, um, interviews with uh, customers, um, with partners, uh, meaning uh, you know joint venture partners, uh, with leaders in the company, et cetera. There's a huge element of qualitative research as well, not just quantitative. And I want to be extremely clear about that. Um, so research and synthesis, just the ability to problem solve. Uh, project management is a huge skill. Uh, obviously, there's the data analysis, which I keep harping on. The ability to look at uh, a ton of data and really uh, glean what is most important and what the implications are for your customer is is hugely valuable um, and then obviously the ability to manage heavy schedules uh, and to think independently right the reason that um if you, i mean you could argue the reason that consultants are hired is because they're it's an independent brain you're just hiring an independent brain that is far enough removed from yes. the situation to see things objectively and to uh cut to the quick and give you a, a good data-based answer mm. I love that. And again, that's why if you think of, if you don't know what contract research organizations are, CROs, uh, you can kind of look them up and it'll help you understand the value of that independent brain, that independent uh, problem solver, whether it's doing experiments or, or looking at data from a variety of sources within a business to, to synthesize the data and solve it. Uh, okay. So what, what does the hiring process look like? Let's zoom out. Every career path has some uh, unique uh, processes and uh, this is particularly true with management consulting can you can you walk us through this James yeah um, I at some point here guys my little dog is gonna start yapping like crazy because I can see some people getting a little too close close to my window so just a warning it's okay yeah that'll be recorded uh, for, for all time um, so I, the the uh, management consulting hiring process is extremely unique, right? The single most unique thing about this is the case, uh, case style interview. Um, it is absolutely the thing that you will need to practice the most, the thing that you will need to spend the most time, the most effort uh, in your preparation and the thing that you should prioritize the most. But there are also massive elements outside of that that you have to nail, right? So this is a great explanation, obviously. Uh, and as you, you know, as I walk through this, a lot of you can can uh, probably easily um, compare and contrast this process with what you know about the typical hiring process for industry, uh, for a research scientist, or for anything else that you're looking at, right? So you you need to refine your LinkedIn profile, and you need to network. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. I know we all hate that, <laughs> but you need to network. Um, you need to refine your resume and your cover letter. Uh, part of the materials really focus on um, the resume. There's a very unique, uh, at least I'm learning, right? I, I'm learning as I, as I see this and answer questions, especially in our Facebook group. Um, and I'll, 
uh, you know, probably a, a huge portion of the activity in that Facebook group, group is people very bravely posting their resumes for feedback and getting a lot of very valuable feedback. Uh, you need to refine your resume so that it tells a very clear story um, of why you are a candidate that these firms are looking for. Somebody who can make a difference. That's, that's really all they're looking for. If I were to just synthesize it really quickly, they want somebody who can achieve results, period, right? Um, and then there's obviously the, the fit interview. When I say fit interview, uh, another term you might hear is uh, maybe experiential interview or something where they're asking you questions about situations that you've been in in the past, whether that's in a lab or, uh, you know, in a volunteer capacity uh, or, or just even in your research situations you've been in the, in, in the past where you have the, you had the opportunity to demonstrate uh, initiative leadership. Um, and most of all, most importantly, your ability to make an impact. So all of those things are important. And I think the mistake a lot of people make, um, people who are not in our program, is they don't refine their resume the right way and they don't practice and prep for their fit interview. Yes. Um, they just spend all the time in the case interview. And if you don't practice the case interview in the right way, uh, I mean, you can also develop some bad habits, uh, bad habits. So the whole thing is uh, the whole program, the whole set of materials is uh, built to help you focus on the right things, practice that case interview skill set the right way and don't neglect the other pieces that are just as important. Yeah. And then obviously James focused on these two aspects, the case interview, the fit interview, very unique to the management consulting, uh, something you can excel at and really, uh, I would say, turn heads at as a PhD is, you know, if you get the training that you need for it, because really it's just leveraging your analytical skills and your, th your synthesis skills, as James would say, uh, on a business problem. So can you walk us through, uh, you know, we'll go through the case interview in a bit more detail, obviously, but just in terms of the, the time here and how many of these rounds you'll do. Yeah. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of variance, honestly. Uh, depending on the firm that you're interviewing with. Um, but uh, it, most firms, you will face uh, what we typically call a, a gauntlet, right? So meaning uh, you'll have the opportunity, um, the wonderful opportunity to go through five or six or seven hours of case interviews straight at some point in your process, right? So the way I think about it is there's typically a first round, right? So there will be a recruiter screening phone call right? So a recruiter will uh, call you, maybe chat about your resume very briefly, not give you a case question. Um, and from there, that recruiter will work on scheduling your first round. The first round is typically a set of shorter cases. So you might have 20 or 30 minute cases, maybe only two or three. But as you progress through rounds, uh, and there can be after that first round, there can be one more round, two more rounds, or in some cases, three more rounds. As you progress through those rounds, you will do uh, longer, more difficult, uh, more involved case questions. Typically, each interview is scheduled for in those in these later rounds for 60 minutes. First 45 minutes is focused on the case. Once you hit that 45 minute, they will cut you off. Doesn't matter if you're you're done with the case or not. And you'll use the back end of that, the last 15 minutes, to talk about your experience. They will, they are trying to gauge your not just your experience, but also your fit, right? Meaning they're asking themselves in the back of their head, is this somebody I want to be, you know, stuck in an airport lobby with for seven hours because we have a delayed flight, right? Is this somebody that 
just fits the culture uh, and the values of our firm. Yeah, and and the the case interview portion of this, James talked about, you know, and I think he's alluded to the fact that, you know, your intelligence or you know traditionally your your IQ uh, is important as well as your EQ though, like understanding how the business decisions might help an organization or the culture or how they might affect it uh, is is crucial. So, James, maybe just set us up here, and I know there's there's some examples coming up, but maybe set us up with the type of question you might be asked. Oh, you know, I know there's two, two real forms here in terms of the case interview and then how you would briefly walk through this and, and then we can get to some more specific examples later. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we talk about two types of question, uh, two types of case questions in the, in the program. There are business situation questions. Isaiah gave us a great example earlier to, hey, we developed, a, the company developed a new product. Uh, it made $20,000 in profit. Should we continue? to uh, market, sell, develop that product, right? That's a business situation question. And then there are more uh, sort of estimation questions. That's what we call them. These can be, um, depending on your attitude, they can be very fun or just crazy, right? So my favorite example, uh, one that I was asked, right? And one that I actually go over in the materials is how many garden hoses were sold in the United States last year, Mm. right? Another great example is uh, how many ping pong balls can fit inside a, a 747 airplane. So um, business situation question, estimation question. There are different approaches for this. Business estimation questions are more common um, and they're probably where you should spend the bulk of your time. This figure, uh, I think the most important things here are look at the three sections, right? You need to have distinctly uh, have distinct approaches for each of these three sections in the way that you practice. There's an open, right? How do you open? There's, and, and I loved how Olga used the word uh, rituals earlier. She was talking about it in the context of meetings. It's absolutely true. And it's very, very true when it comes to case interviews. We're trying to help you develop habits. Um, and those habits, if they are truly habits, uh, you know, you've heard the sort of the cliche, you won't rise to the occasion, you'll fall to the level of your training. Well, we're trying to get you the right habits because in the middle of that anxiety, when the pressure's on, you'll drop to whatever habits you have. Mm. So the open, the analysis, the close, the open. I mean, I could go through a very specific example here, but they asked the question, you restate it, make sure you understand, probe for some more information, and you asked for some time to gather your thoughts and develop a structure. And then it's kind of like the opening volley, right? You lay out your structure for the interviewer and you go through a process of analysis. Finally, at some point, you either uh, you find you know, a significant insight or you are provided with some additional numbers, right? And then uh, those numbers will lead you to an answer and then there's a close. And the, the close always goes the same way. It's, hey, from what we just uh, went through, what's the so what? apply this to our company, synthesize all this information that you analyzed, you broke it all apart, put it back together and tell me this. So what? So open analysis close. We go into this in real depth in the material. And yeah. uh, I, I hope it's very valuable. Yeah. And uh, the big part of it is you're being evaluated on your process and explaining this. So like, especially for the open here, like James said, you know, restating things, talking about how you're, you're setting the, the stage for how you're going to solve it. 
and this is a big uh, blind spot for a lot of PhDs because we're in our heads solving things all the time. We're like, wait, I got to externalize this. It takes practice. It's a new habit. But this is so exciting. I mean, how many of you see this and it excites you? Because most of us, you know, we live here. <laughs> we might we gather here and then, you know, it, it, this is really could be research and analysis once you're on site uh, doing the work in the real world. But we, we very rarely get to move past this point. We might find the right problem to solve, but to be able to right, synthesize the problem and make a recommendation and then have people listen to that recommendation in deep respect and then throw millions of dollars behind it to see your uh, recommendation in the real world and solve and turn businesses around. It's just a, it's an exciting thing that I, I wish every PhD uh, could do. And that's why we're, you know, we really want to get more PhDs in, into these roles because uh, businesses, companies will benefit from your expertise. Uh, so let's dive a little bit more deeply, just showing this, uh, you know, Punnett square, <laughs> so to speak. But uh, we're not looking at genetics here, right? We're looking at how to go about the case interview process and what you're really being evaluated on. Yeah, so this is, uh, it's very intentional on my part to use a two by two matrix. Um, it's, it's almost a joke. Um, it is a joke, right? For anybody who interacts with a consultant, how often a two by two matrix is used in consulting. Hmm. This one is very simple. It's making one, one point, right? It, the point is look at that upper right quadrant. It does not matter if you get the right answer from the wrong process. You're not going to move on. The only thing that matters in the case interview is the process. It is not the answer, right? There isn't a right, a correct answer. Uh, you know, maybe there will be a few uh, arithmetic, so to speak, problems in the course of this interview, and certainly you'll need to get those correct. But the, the whole thing that you need to focus on is the process of a case interview. Let's look at this problem, right? So this is uh, a uh, case question you brought to us. Should the Mexican government use its 22,000 stores for rural financial services? So where do you start in terms of looking at these different factors? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question, right? So we're in the open, right? So on the left side, somebody just posed this business situation question to me. So what, I'm gonna, you know, what am I going to do, right? I'm going to restate it, uh, which I won't do here. I'll, I'll probe for some more information, and then I'll pause and think about my structure, the elements on the right side, those five elements, are common across all frameworks, across all ways that you could uh, try to structure your approach to any one of these business situation questions, right? So that doesn't mean that every framework or every approach you take will include all of those elements, but they're the key elements that will be included in most, uh, most every framework that you come across from our material or any other material, right? So the way I would approach this, right, is I would say, oh, hey, that's a very interesting question, Isaiah. Let me ask a couple of uh, questions just to clarify, make sure I'm answering the right thing. So first, um, what type of financial services are we talking about? What is the objective of delivering or providing these financial services? What are we trying to achieve, right? Um, and help me understand, uh, you know, in the context of that objective, um, how would you measure success? Those types of questions, right? So I'm probing for some more information, restating a little bit, making sure we're on the same page. Then I would structure my response, right? And if I were to structure my response on, on the fly, I would say, you know what, here's what I want to do. I want to start by understanding 
the customers. So in this case, um, you know, I think the customers are defined as uh, rural uh, inhabit or inhabitants of rural areas of Mexico who are in need of these types of financial services, right? So I want to take a deep look at those and see if this is something that would be uh, attractive to those customers. Then I want to look at products. So in this case, the products are these financial services. So I want to talk about types of financial services we're considering and, uh, uh, you know, analyze those services against that customer, those customers that we just chatted about to see if those two match, to see are we going to be offering the right types of services for the, you know, for those customers. Uh, and then finally, I want to, you know, take a look at um, the operation. So in this case, the, I mean, the company, but in this case, the, the uh, I guess I should call it the department of the government that is going to be running this service. What types of capabilities do they have? Can they provide the services that are intended in the right way efficiently? Uh, and, you know, is all of this together, customers, products, and company going to uh, result in the type of success we talked about initially? Right, so super simple structure on the fly, but those five elements, if you kind of have those in your back pocket and we talk about those extensively through the program, you're able to come up with structures on your own to take on any question that gets thrown at you. Yeah, well said. And I'm just moving forward here because I want to just break those down. I mean, this is the, again, the, the elements that you will be focused on and you have to know you don't have training in these elements. You don't think about markets. You don't think about competition, other companies, the products, customers. Why? Because most of you have research experience and that's it, right? You have innovation experience, but nothing on the commercialization side of business. And, the, and here's, the, here's the secret. It's, these questions don't just come up uh, on management consulting interviews. <laughs> they come up on every interview in industry overall. That question that I asked you, by the way, uh, the answer uh, overall is no, you should not, you, you know, especially if it's an Intel, a Pfizer, a company that makes billions of dollars per year, you should not continue to make a product that's $20,000 in profit. They're evaluating your ability to zoom out and look at the overall scope and scale in industry versus academia. In academia, everything's small, right? You've heard the joke, why are the stakes so high in academia? Because nothing matters, right? Or everything's so small. But in industry, of billions of dollars, $20,000, it's just profit noise. And, and these are concepts that you just don't, don't know. Um, so these five elements, you will be... Uh, trained on extensively. And this is what will allow you to answer business questions. And I just, I really want to encourage as many of you as possible to join the management consulting firm, get access, all of these figures, these diagrams that you see, you get those times a hundred in the program. You walk through it with James uh, and the other board members, the other people who are working in management consulting positions uh, at tier one companies, tier two and boutique firms, just, just like James and the, the sample of panelists you saw on today. So James, thank you very much for your time, for being on the radio show and for providing your insights. This takes us to the end of this show. You can learn about this program and all of our programs at cheekyscientist.com. If you are new to your job search, you don't know which position's right for you. You can go to phdsgethired.com. That's plural, PhDs gethired.com to learn more about our flagship program, the Cheeky Scientist Association that has helped thousands of PhDs around the world get hired. It'll train you on the basics of your job search and help you find the right position for you. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional.
I'm Isaiah Henkel, the founder of Cheeky Scientist and the creator of the Cheeky Scientist Association. I wanted to quickly tell you that memberships into the association are available to PhDs listening to Cheeky Scientist Radio by using the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com, P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll down to the orange membership button and click on it, then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. That's Cheeky Radio, C-H-E-E-K-Y-R-A-D-I-O. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Are you worried about the rapidly shrinking job market? Like me, have you been seeing more and more articles on universities shutting down their research labs, furloughing employees, cutting postdocs and TAs, and even withdrawing PhD student funding? If so, it might be wise to start taking steps to protect your PhD career. You've worked very hard and very intelligently for years to establish yourself, but likely you have not reached your full career potential yet. Perhaps you're not even getting respect and you're not getting the rewards that you deserve. The good news is you can get into an industry career where you can get paid well for doing meaningful work. All you need is the right knowledge and the right network. The Cheeky Scientist Association gives you lifetime access to the world's number one PhD-only job search training platform with multiple courses and the PhD-only job referral network of over 10,000-plus industry PhDs. Now is your chance to become a lifetime member for 20% off of the association. Just use the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com. P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll to the orange membership button, and click on it, then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. No recurring monthly fees, no recurring annual fees. Nobody else offers this. PhDsgethired.com. Use the coupon code CheekyRadio. Remember your value as a PhD, and remember that knowledge is power, and your network is your net worth.